Let's turn to 1 Peter, and uh, we are in 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, looking at verses 13 through 16. If you need to follow along and don't have a Bible with you this morning, there's pew Bibles in front of you, and you can find our text on page 1014. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. Now, Peter has uh, started us off very well in our study uh, by having us explore salvation. And as believers, that's an important theme for us to uh, be thinking about. That which we've been saved from our sins by the blood of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, which played the key parts of redeeming us out of our sin and into an eternal and living hope that's found in Jesus Christ. It's this triune God whom we serve who continues to be active in our salvation. We've learned over these past couple weeks that our salvation isn't just a moment in time where we bow the knee to Jesus, but it's a, uh, in, in many ways, it's been a timeless event that has been taking place. It begins in eternity past. It happens uh, throughout our uh, seeking of God, and then, of course, as we uh, find uh, Christ uh, through the gift of the Holy Spirit, he renews us, he changes us, and even now, as we sit here today, we are being made new each and every morning. We are, in many ways, being saved all over again, over and over again, as that uh, movement of sanctification takes place in our life, and one day, as Peter announces, we will one day be a part of a great inheritance the resurrection of our bodies and the glorification of our bodies. And so this salvation is something that's going on our entire lives and we are now able to enjoy it. Now last week, Peter told us that the prophets and the apostles told us about these things. They told us about uh, what was to come, this gospel message that was going to be proclaimed. And they were faithful to the task of making that known to us. But what we learned is they only knew it in part. They only knew what had been revealed to them. And we as believers, as recipients of God's grace, have seen fully the grace of God and the peace of God that Peter says in verse 2 is being multiplied to us. And so it's so amazing that we are able to be a part of this abundant grace. So amazing and so profound. Peter says last week as we learned that even the angels who are in the presence of God all the time Look over the railing of heaven and marvel at the grace that you and I have. We learned last week we've got it so very good. Now Peter's going to move now before we get into the text. Peter is going to move us in this new section uh, to apply the truths of our salvation. We have a great salvation. We have been blessed with an incredible grace that God has given us. And so what are we to do about it? Peter says, notice in your text as we look at that first word, he says, therefore, because of, as a result of the great salvation that you and I have, we need to do something. We need to turn our attention to a life of holiness, to turn the knowledge that we have of the salvation we have into practice and to live out that life of salvation before a lost world. Every time you deal with doctrine in the New Testament, you will always see the New Testament writers go from doctrine to practice because what we believe is going to then, in turn, show us how we are to behave. And that's what Peter wants us to see this morning. Because you and I have been born again, because we have a living hope, because we are part of an imperishable inheritance reserved for us in heaven, because God has done all of this in us, he calls us to do one thing, to be holy as he is holy. And that's what I want to focus in on this morning. What is the life of holiness to look like? And how are we as sinners saved by grace how are we to live out that life of holiness? And so let's look at our text this morning. 
And let's draw on these a couple verses that we have before us. Let's go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Father God, we once again come before you and we ask for your blessing on our time in the word. Father, as believers, as those who have been changed by the power of Jesus Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit, Father, we pray that you would make us holy. Now, Lord, we recognize that you are the one who makes unclean things holy, but we recognize that there are certain things that we are a part of. Lord, this work of sanctification, it's a progressive walk, but it's a walk that is done in partnership with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, as we look at these holy habits this morning, I pray that you would instill upon us the drive and the desire and, Lord, the pursuit to pursue holiness in all that we do. Lord, we're going to need your spirit to do so, so we ask your spirit would empower us and fill us this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Amanda and I are in the chapter of our parenting of young children of being a part of instilling holy habit, or I'm sorry, healthy habits in the life of our three boys, 10, uh, 7, and uh, 4. And it's a difficult job because if you're a parent, you know that the bad habits just come out of nowhere, don't they? They just pick them up by osmosis or some way that the bad habits that you don't want them to have, they pick those up just fine. But the ones that are important, the healthy ones, the good habits, those are difficult to come by. And so as parents, we find ourselves over and over again, day in and day out, over every day, finding ourselves trying to instill these habits into the life of our kids. We do so because, number one, we want their moms to be proud of who their kids are, and that's important. But we also want them to be good citizens, good people. We want them to one day be able to uh, grow up and be parents and adults of their own. And so some of the things that we instill at the Badal family are things like uh, table manners, respect for others, uh, submitting to authority, Daily hygiene with three boys, you got to nail that one a whole bunch. Public safety, uh, working hard in school, making sure you're a part of uh, helping around the house. Uh, day after day, we instill these habits into our kids. We do so so they might be socially responsible adults. They may be hard workers. That they might be able to properly relate to the world around them. Now, these things are important to us as parents as well. Because we have learned that these are healthy things for us to have. That if we're not living these habits out in our lives, our lives in many ways will find themselves dysfunctional to say the least. So it is with holiness, brothers and sisters. Just as we instill in our children uh, different pursuits and different tasks that they have to live out a healthy upbringing and childhood, so it is with holiness that we are called to do the same thing. We're called to be holy, and in our text today, we are going to be given three habits that need to be a part of our lives. And if you look at 1 Peter, he's going to over and over and over, like a good parent, 
continue to articulate the need for us to instill these habits into our lives. He does so in our text. He says he desires for us, as we as parents desire of our children, to be obedient children who give glory to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here before us are three holy habits. I'm going to give them to you so you know where we're going this morning. The first habit is is that there needs to be preparation. That's the first one. The second one we're going to talk about is having a proper, if you will, elimination. We've got to eliminate some things. And then third, we're going to talk about a proper imitation. So preparation, elimination, and uh, imitation are the three things that we want to draw out this morning. Now before we get there, just as my children say to me, and just as I did with my parents, when we tell them to be a part of one of these habits, one of the questions that will come up when we say, go and brush your teeth, well, why do I have to brush my teeth? One of my sons, my middle son Joshua, who lost his first tooth on his seventh birthday, said, Dad, if my teeth are just going to fall out, why would I brush them? Okay? That's great logic from a seven-year-old kid, okay? And we tell them because the great answer, I told you so. You don't need to know why. I just told you so. Well, I want you to know, some of us may ask the question, why do I have to be holy? Why do I have to do these things? God, why are you requiring these things of me? And like a good father, God, our Father in heaven, says, it is written, you shall be holy because I am holy. I'm going to hold you to the same accountability that I hold to myself. You are going to be a holy individual just as I myself am holy. And so we need to understand that when God says that, when he says it is written, we need to understand because God has said it, in our minds that settles it. We need to recognize that when God calls us to holiness, he's not giving us a suggestion He's not saying, well, if you find some time as a believer, go ahead and try to work on that holiness thing. He says, this is important. This is a command, and I am calling all believers to a life of holiness. So how do we get there? We get there, first of all, with a proper preparation. A proper preparation. I had a basketball coach in high school who would give this phrase, and I learned that it was kind of an offshoot of a, a phrase that Thomas Edison had come up with, and he would say that uh, winning a basketball game was 10, 10% perspiration. He hadn't seen me, obviously, run and sweat, but 10% perspiration and 90% preparation. Now, you'd say, well, that, that doesn't seem to make sense because if you've ever played a sport of basketball, you recognize there's a lot of sweating going on. There's a lot of running, that it, it takes energy to play the game. But what my coach was trying to instill in us, his players, was that we are going to win the game on Friday night, not per se alone on what happens on the court that, during that game, but what we did on the practice field, what we did on the practice court, what we did the rest of the week. And so he would instill that we would practice really hard, he would always say, so that the game seemed real easy to us. We would run like there was no tomorrow in the practice court just to be able to say that the game, no matter how strenuous it was, the game would be easy to us. 10% perspiration, 90% preparation. I wonder if Peter had this kind of thinking in his mind as well, because many of us think that the Christian life is all about doing, all about uh, perspiring and working hard and finding ourselves failing. 
Peter tells us this morning that it's not so much about us doing it in the moment, but being prepared in advance. Notice what he says in verse 13. He says, therefore, in light of all that I've told you about salvation, about your inheritance, about what God, the triune God has done for you and what he's continuing to do in you through the work of salvation, therefore, preparing your minds for action. Now that phrase uh, is a rendering, is a translation of a somewhat archaic phrase or word picture. This idea is a picture of readiness, preparing yourself for action. In essence, if you watch the old war movies in World War II, it was battle stations. Get to your battle stations. And you would see troops running to their places, ready for action. This is what Peter is articulating. But the phrase that he uses in the original Greek is literally translated, gird up the loins of your minds. I know that doesn't do anything for you. What in the world does that mean? Gird up the loins of your mind. What that meant to the modern reader today really is nothing. That doesn't make any sense to us. And the translators of our English translation do a pretty good job in translating that. But the original readers, Peter's original recipients, would totally understand what that meant. In a culture where both men and women wore long, uh, flowing robes, they would understand what that meant. What that meant was to gird up one's loins, was to take the long flowing robe and to begin to scoop it up and tie it along the waist so you'd be able to run or do some sort of strenuous activity. And so what Peter is saying in the external that has to do with the internal is get rid of the robe that's going to cause you encumbrances. Get rid of it so you're ready for action and you're ready to go at a moment's notice, ready to do exactly what God has said. But how are we to do that with regards to our minds? How do we, if you will, uh, gird up uh, our robes and getting rid of the encumbrances that come within the mind. Peter tells us, in essence, what we might say to our own kids or to others, it's time to roll up your sleeves. It's time to put your thinking cap on. It's time to be ready to work. But the working that's gonna be done is not of muscles and tendons in our arms and our legs, but it has to do with the mind. Mark Knoll, a church historian, uh, who was formerly a professor at Wheaton College and now is the head of church history and Christian history at Notre Dame University in Indiana, wrote a book a couple years ago that, that was a huge selling book amongst Christians, especially evangelical Christians. And it was called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. Mark Knoll, an, Mark Knoll, an evangelical, was writing to us as evangelicals. And what he was saying was, I want to talk not about what you do or how you talk or, 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 or what you're involved in. I want to talk solely about the mind of each of us as evangelicals. And this is what he says in the book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. He starts his book with this statement. The scandal of the evangelical mind is that there is no evangelical mind. Now, maybe you didn't get that. He says, and he's a smart dude, his response is, is that as evangelicals, when it comes to us using our minds for the cause of Christ, we have no mind. And he goes on and says, and it's no scandal. We're okay with, in some ways, a mindless following of Jesus Christ. Now, you say, well, what does the mind have to do with it? Well, Jesus told us 
that the greatest commandment was to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I think we do a real good job of loving the Lord with all our heart, with all our soul, our emotion, with all our strength. We're out there doing it. Give us a task and we'll finish it. We'll get it done. But one of the things that we failed to do is to love the Lord God with all our mind. And yet what we learn is that the mind is the keyhole to the rest of the body. What goes through our brains, if you will, will inevitably find its way into the heart, which then finds its way into the hands. So we've got to know and understand that when Mark Knoll says we have no mind, that is quite a stinging rebuke. And yet I believe it to be true. And yet the Bible's filled with passages of Scripture that tell us to get the mind right. Paul tells Romans, the Romans church, to be transformed by the renewing of the mind. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. In Colossians, we are told by Paul that we are to set our minds on things above, not on earthly things. That we've got to get our perspective right in our heads first before we can ever move on with our bodies. The book of Proverbs tells us over and over again that we are to acquire the knowledge of God in our minds so that we may live for him in the flesh. And in Isaiah 26, 3, we are promised that if we seek after God and pursue God with all of our hearts, then we might have steadfastness of mind. So how are we to do this? Peter says, okay, church, I want you to gird up the loins of your minds. I want your minds to be ready for action. One way we do this, write in your outlines this, this passage, 2 Corinthians 10.5. 2 Corinthians 10.5. What we are to do, the way we gird up our minds and prepare our minds for action is to take every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. What that means is we go out into our day. Instead of just mindlessly going through the day, we ask the question, what would Jesus say about this? What would Jesus say about what I'm watching? What would Jesus say about what I'm reading? What would Jesus say about who I'm hanging out with? What would Jesus say about this business practice or that one? What would Jesus say about how I spend my money? That we would take every thought that we have under Christ and our obedience to him. This is what Peter is talking about. Make sure that everything you do gets funneled through a mind that asks the question, what would Jesus do? And what would Jesus have for me? The sad thing is, Mark Knoll talks about this in his book, that many evangelicals are really just open manhole, uh, open manholes. You've seen them. You go into the city of Chicago or any major city, and you'll see the manholes. They've got a cover on them. What Mark Knoll says in his book is that the evangelical mind is an open manhole. So anything and everything is able to go in there, and the manhole just receives it, just takes it in. And what he says is as evangelicals, because we're not girding up our minds, we're absorbing into our minds all of this stuff. We get it from TV, we get it from our books, we get it from popular culture, and we just receive it. Never a thought of saying, let's put the cover on it so that all this garbage doesn't get into our lives. And so we absorb it, and little do we know that it becomes the very part 
of who we are. Christians need to be managing their minds. Well, once we begin to do that, once we begin to say, I'm going to take every thought captive under Christ, two things will come as a result. Number one, self-control. Self-control. Peter tells us, notice in the text, therefore, preparing our minds for action, he says we will be sober-minded. The idea there is that of being self-controlled. Now, when we hear the word sober, we think of, of course, being drunk, being filled with alcohol or some intoxicating drug that causes us to, in some ways, not be ourselves, to be led by the spirits instead of, for Christians, being led by the spirits. But that's not exactly what Paul is ta- I'm sorry, Peter is talking about. What Peter is trying to impart is not that uh, being sober is being um, in uh, control of one's physical faculties or being filled as a drunk individual with drink, but of the mind. And what he's saying is, is we need to make sure that our mind is at all times fully operational. That we're not zoning out. We don't find ourselves just uh, involved in mindless activity, not wondering, well, what is this doing to me? What's this doing to my spiritual life? And just finding ourselves living in excess and passion and rashness and confusion, but being well-balanced, taking every thought captive under Christ and doing an appraisal of everything that's going on around me. This is what Peter is saying. Peter's saying, look to the world, but look to the world through the lens of Scripture. Look through the world and see and ask, how did Jesus live in this sinful world? How did Jesus interact with the world around him to do that with his mind? Now, we need to do this because if we don't, the Scriptures tell us over and over again that if we don't live with that kind of sober-mindedness, and we'll get to this in a moment, we'll conform ourselves to the world. And so there has to be a transformation that every believer must say, I am going to think differently about this world, and the reason why I'm going to think differently is because I'm a saved individual. I have come to know salvation in Jesus Christ. Because if you don't, little by little, little pieces of information after little pieces of information will come into our mind. And just as the drinker drinks, he doesn't get drunk all at once. It isn't as soon as the liquor touches his lips, he becomes drunk. But little by little, ounce after ounce, a little more of him is controlled more and more by that drink. Brothers and sisters, some of us are taking in this world right now little, little ounce by little ounce. And you say, well, I'm not there. I'm not even close to that. Well, just keep sipping it. Just keep sipping it. And after a while, you'll start seeing that your mind becomes a little slurred. Your mind becomes a little more impaired. The things that you used to say no to, now you don't say no to because you have fallen in love with this present world instead of loving Christ. This is what Peter is talking about. Why we must prepare our minds for action. Now, how do we do it? He says that we have to set our hopes on eternity. Notice the text again. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Just so you know, the glory and grace that's going to be brought to us will be the time of our, our glorification. It will be the time when this age is over where we stand before Christ and we are made to be like him. 
And we will have our resurrected bodies and we will usher in with Christ eternity where we will worship and live and interact with Jesus without any involvement of sin. And Peter says, I want you to look towards that day. I want your looking towards that day to impact how you deal with today. You see, some of us are living our lives without any real hope. Oh, we have this idea that maybe Christ is who he says he is, and maybe one day he'll take us to be with him in eternity. But that's not the hope that Peter is talking about. This word hope that he has, setting our hope, is the Greek word elpizo. It means a confident expectation of, that, of what God has prepared for his people. Now this illustration may help you this morning. And, and I'm using it in the temporal to try to explain the eternal, so give me a little leeway here. But let's say that I am invited to go to the local carnival. Carnivals are fun, right? They have great food, and, and they have some nice rides. They're not the best rides, but they're fun rides to, to go and be a part of. And, of course, they've got games. And I've been given uh, the opportunity to go with friends, but I'm told by my parents... We don't want you, you can go, but we don't want you to play any of the games. We don't want you to eat any of the food. We don't want you to spend any money on the rides. We don't want you to do that. Now, some of us view Christianity that way. There's a carnival going on, and God, the, the celestial killjoy, says, don't touch, don't do, don't have any fun. Just watch everybody else do it, but you don't get to have any of that fun. But here is the difference. The Christian life is like the parent then who says, we don't want you to spend any of your money here because your mom and dad, mom and dad didn't tell you, but we're going to Disney World tomorrow. And we know that there's a lot of fun, and we know, but we're going to save all of our money to spend it at Disney World, quote, unquote, the happiest place on earth. Now, how easy would it be for a young person to say no to the tilt-a-whirl to be able to go see Mickey Mouse? I think it would be pretty easy. Even my youngest boys would totally understand. I would rather give up some of the carnival fun stuff, some of the small stuff, to be able to enjoy the big stuff that's coming in the future that's been promised to me. You see, some of us go about life looking at the world as a carnival saying, I just want to have fun. I, my friends are going on the ride, so I want to go on the ride. My friends are eating the corn dogs. I want to eat the corn dog. And what we forget is God doesn't say, no, you can't. He just says, wait, there's something better coming. And what we need to recognize is we must set our hope on the idea that God has something that the Scripture says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared for his people. God's got something in store for us. And while we go about this life and the world lives its life and we are pursuing and desire, we're desiring that kind of life, God says, don't pursue it. I've got a plan. And this plan is good. And you're going to have the time of your life. Just wait. And so we need to understand that. God is going to reveal something great. And what that greatness is and what that hope is going to instill in us, hopefully, when we set our minds on what God is doing, it will fight the allure of sin. That the things, that carnival and all the games and all the fun won't seem quite as alluring. But if this is all our hope is in, in this world and what's involved, then I'll tell you, you're wasting your time. Go have a ball. But if you believe what Scripture says, 
that God is the impartial judge and that he's coming back, it's time for us to start looking to the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. Now notice that what Peter then moves to after speaking of this hope, he says, all right, that's how you prepare yourself. You become sober-minded, you become self-controlled, and the way that you can become self-controlled is by recognizing that God has something uh, in the future for you that is greater than anything here on earth. And so don't get tripped up by the things of the today with what's gonna happen in eternity. And so what then Peter moves to is he says, now we've gotta involve ourselves in some elimination. We gotta get rid of some things. We've got to rid ourselves of things. Notice what he says in verse 14. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former uh, ignorance. Do not be conformed. The word conformed there is a compound Greek word. And that word is something that's only used one other time in Scripture. And it has to do with the mind again. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, transform yourself by the renewing of your mind. Romans 12, 2 says that we should not conform ourselves to the ways of this world. That word conform, literally, write this down, that word conform is to put oneself into a mold. To put oneself into a mold. Now we're going to do this here in a couple weeks, moms and and probably some dads. We're going to make Christmas cookies, right? And we don't just like regular round cookies. We want Christmas tree cookies, and we want uh, heart-shaped cookies, and we want uh, cookies that have all different kinds of shapes and, 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 and all kinds of things that remind us that it's Christmas time. Well, I want you to think about this for a moment. What being a conformed Christian is, is pouring the batter, if you will, of who we are into the form of the world. That we're gonna be just like the world is. We're not going to be shaped by Christ, but we're going to be shaped by the world. It means to fashion oneself to be like someone else or some particular thing, to follow its ways. Sadly, too many of us as Christians live this as a daily occurrence. So this is what happens for us. And and the reason why I know it happens for you is because it happens to me. I get up. And I've been a part of a wonderful Sunday where I've been reminded to transform myself by the renewing of my mind. And so I get up, and as I'm getting ready for the day, Lord, this is going to be a new day. It's going to be a great day. I'm going to live for you. I'm going to desire to follow you. I'm going to promote and proclaim who you are to the world around me. When I get to work, I'm going to be bold. When I am in the neighborhood, I'm going to be a person who is not afraid to show Christ. It's all great. Then I get into the world, and I'm reminded... And I'm tempted by the devil to say, you're just one in a hundred. Don't you know what you're going to do as a minority in your workplace? They're going to laugh at you. They're going to mock you. They're going to tell you that being a Christian is being fanatical, that being a Christian is messed up. And so what you're going to begin to start thinking, as I have before in my own life, well, being a Christian really doesn't mean I have to open my mouth. I can quietly do it. And so, and, and I don't want to be too in your face, and so... I'll laugh at the jokes. I don't want to become across holier than thou, and so I'll allow the language to come out. And what we begin to do is because we don't want the world to deny us, we begin to look like the world. And we think that we can do that and still be transformed by the work of Christ. We can't. Paul tells us that the way of holiness, hear this very important this morning, that the life of holiness is going to be counterintuitive to culture. It's been counterintuitive 
or countercultural uh, in all aspects of our lives, in our work, in our friendships, and all of that. But can I tell you, and maybe, maybe you've experienced this as I have, holiness goes against every fabric of who I am as an individual. It doesn't come naturally to me. Being holy is something that seemingly is out of the ordinary from what my body and, and my desires for life are all about. And that's why I've got to get my head on straight, as my dad used to say, and I need to look with a fresh set of eyes because holiness is not going to come on its own. We've got to work at it. God is going to give us the power to do so. God's going to call us to do so. But we're going to have to make an honest effort to live out a life of holiness But what that's going to mean is we cannot conform ourselves to what I call futile thinking. Notice he says, to our former times of ignorance. Peter is no doubt doubt addressing new adult believers. And he's articulating to them those who have come from pagan lifestyles, who have lived their own way. And what they did was they pursued their own ways because they didn't know God. They were ignorant to the fact that God had commanded them to holiness. They were ignorant to that God loved them and cared for them. And so they found themselves living life. And the definition of living life was to go after what every soul longs for. And that is to take care of self. To have a purpose and an identity. But without God in that mindset, these people found out that the only purpose that they could find in life was to pursue pleasures possessions, prestige, all the things that surround us. And so what would happen is, as we pursue those things as individuals, we hurt those around us. We pursue those things, and we find ourselves uh, not getting them. Because if you notice, I saw this thing on Facebook, only in America do we, at one moment on Thanksgiving Day, say we're thankful and content for all that we have, and then just a couple hours later we got to go and get what we don't have. We need to understand that futile thinking is thinking that I can achieve happiness and joy on my own by the things that I give myself. And here's the problem. What happens is when I make that my goal, I'm going to hurt the people around me. Because it's all about me. It's not about you. I need to be taken care of. And here's the issue, and here's the great lie and deception of the devil. As we do that, there's a noose around our neck. And the more we pursue those things, the more we want, and the more empty we become. Brothers and sisters, just look at Hollywood. They seemingly have everything they want in the world, and they live sad lives because it's never enough. That's why Mick Jagger, the great secular theologian, could say, I can't get any satisfaction. I try, I try, and I try, but I can't get it. This is futile thinking. This is ignorant thinking. Now, it's understandable for unbelievers to do so, but what is is not understandable for us as believers is to go back into that thinking. And Peter says, don't do it. Notice this former or futile thinking also involves former things former things. He says, don't involve yourself in the former passions. That word passions there is the Greek word epithumia, and it's usually used in positive ways. Passion for the ministry, passion for your family, passion, especially passion between a husband and a wife. Positive, good things. God has made us to be passionate creatures. 
But we can put our passions instead of on the things of God and the things that God in his right timing and his right arena say are good to be passionate about. And what we do in our sin is we turn our passion on the things that God says, hey, I don't want you there. I don't want you involved in those things. Those aren't going to be good in your life. And what Peter says is this. Don't let your passions rule you. Don't let the ways that you used to live rule you today. And we do all the time. Our passion, uh, when it comes to um, certain things that we feel very strongly about, we get so passionate about it, and instead of letting our minds rule us with the word of Christ dwelling richly in us, we allow our anger to get involved. We're so passionate, and we don't bring it into check, and our anger comes out, and what happens in our head moves to our heart and then moves to our hands, and we ruin relationships because of unbridled anger. Passion when it comes to our flesh, to our, our sexuality. God doesn't say sex is bad. God says it's good, it's beautiful. One of the greatest gifts God has given, but he's given it in a certain confinement, in a certain arena. It is to happen uh, between a husband and wife, and it's to take place in the intimacy of that kind of relationship. But passion starts to rule us, and it begins to rule us in such a way that we say, well, if I have this passion, then I should live it out. And because I want to satisfy self, I can't tell you how many people have come to me in broken relationships because the passion of the flesh has caused them to live out those passions and wreak great havoc in the life of the person. So we see it over and over and over again. Now here's the truth that I want you to know. When God says don't be conformed by the passions of your former ignorance, when the scripture says something like that, when it commands us to do something, understand this, the Bible never commands something that we can't do, okay? So when the word of God says don't do this, you and I have the power to not do it. We have the ability to make that happen. That's why the Bible never says, hey, don't jump 20 feet in the air, just don't do that. I know you've got the potential to do it, but don't. You know, you might hit your head on something. It doesn't say it. We can't do that, so God doesn't address that issue. But what God addresses here is don't conform yourself to it, and we can know without a shadow of a doubt that we can by the power of the Holy Spirit. So how do we get there? It involves a proper imitation. A proper imitation. Notice verse 15 and 16. He says this, but as he who called you is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. As we prepare ourselves for action, to pursue a life of holiness, as we eliminate the thinking and the pursuits of the former ways of life in this world, we are called then to now imitate holiness. Now, why are we called to imitate it? Because we ourselves can't construct it on our own. We will never in, our, in and of ourselves find holiness. And so we have to go and find one who is holy, and we have to imitate what they are doing. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 5, 1, as dearly loved children, be imitators of God. The only way we can pursue holiness is by imitating one who is holy. We can't do it on our own. And this is going to involve, first of all, a right definition. A right definition. It says, but the one who called you is holy, you also be holy. So it involves the one who has called us. Scott McKnight is a professor 
uh, of had been a professor of a couple different schools here in the area, and uh, he was teaching a theology class. And one of his things that he did over and over again was the first day of the semester class, he would give the group an assignment. And the assignment was at your desk to take some time and to write out what is Jesus like. Tell me all that you know about Jesus. Tell me what was his personality like? What were his mannerisms? How did he relate with people? How did he interact with things he didn't like? How did he interact with things he did like? I want you to take some moments and give me a picture of who your Savior is. Describe to me what Jesus was like. Now, a student asks, why are you having us do this? Do you not know who Jesus is, Professor Scott? And his response was after the class, I know who Jesus is. What I want to get to know is, who you are. And he says, how will you, the class, the, the, the student said, how will you get to know me if all I'm doing is writing about Jesus? Professor McKnight responded and he said, because all of us find a way of fashioning Jesus after ourselves. And so the way that I get to know who you are is to get to understand what your definition of Jesus is. How you put Jesus into who you are. Can I tell you, a lot of us do that. I have a way of doing that. The things that I think are gross, I say people shouldn't be a part of. Stay away from those things. Don't do those things. The things that are easy for me uh, to follow, I make a whole set of rules of do's and don'ts, and I say, well, everybody should do that. And here's the problem. If holiness is defined by us, it's not holy at all. You know, Jesus came into this world, and the biggest critic of his ministry were people that thought they were holy based on their criteria. And Jesus said, don't do that. Because what it looks like is holiness on the outside, but he says, you're a bunch of dead man's bones on the inside. You're unholy. And so stop creating a level of holiness based on what you think it is. And so here's what happens in churches. Two unholy people start defining what holiness is, and then they fight one another about who's holier. That's not holiness. Holiness is us recognizing we're totally unholy, totally depraved, and the only place we can look for holiness is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the model of holiness. He is holiness personified. And so what we need to understand is that holiness means to be set apart. It's the word hagios. Hagios means to be set apart. Now, what we usually get, and what I grew up understanding holiness was, was holiness was separating yourself from sin. Stay away from those things. Don't do that. And so the church I grew up in was filled with do's and don'ts. Don't do that. If you do that, you're a sinner. If you do that, you're wrong. If you do that, you're dirty. And that's a part of holiness, setting apart ourselves from sin. That's exactly what God does. God does not have himself in the presence of sin. But also notice that holiness involves setting yourself to the glory of God. And we forget that so often. We're quick to say, well, I got to stay away from sin, but setting ourselves also then apart for God. And that's what God is all about. God separates himself from sin and sets himself apart for his glory and his mercy and his grace. And so that's what we need to do. That's the transforming of our minds. We put off the things of the flesh and we put on the mind of Christ. Where is this to be lived out? Notice the text. He finishes up and he says, we are to be holy in all our conduct. 
It happens and involves every detail of our lives. The word conduct there is one of the favorite words of Peter's. He's going to use it eight different times. Uh, Some translations, in all that you do. That's okay, but that just gives us the physicality of it. But it's all that we think, all that we say. What this involves is a total pattern of life that we as Christians who desire holiness are pursuing God in every moment, in every thought, in every action. We're doing so because we're wanting to avoid the sin and we're wanting and being compelled to delight in the things of God. So let's bring it back and let's close this thing. As God's children, God as our heavenly father is calling us to obedience. How do we get there? God says you gotta develop some habits. How prepared are you to go into the week this week? How prepared are you as you turn on the TV, as you turn on the internet, How prepared are you for the things you're going to hear on the radio? Are you able to put every thought under, uh, um, uh, every thought captive under the word of Christ? Or are you just receiving it without any discernment whatsoever? Are you finding ways to not conform yourself? What's your battle plan? Are you ready to go into this world even though everybody's going one direction? Are you ready to go the opposite direction? Because God says you can't go that way. What's your plan? How are you going to address it? How are you going to make sure that you find victory in it? That's where we need to eliminate some things. And then, how are you doing at imitating Christ this morning? Do you look like him? Do you sound like him? Do you live for him? This is what holiness is all about. And it calls us. It's not a suggestion. It's a calling for each and every one of us. So let's ask and pray that God would give us the strength to do so this week. Father God, we come before you, Lord, and we're thankful that, Lord, though we are sinful, because of the work on the cross, you have made us holy. We are justified. We stand legally before you, righteous. But, Lord, we also recognize that in this life, that we're not perfect, but you're calling us to that kind of life. So Lord, change our minds. Allow us to put you first in our minds, that every priority would first be found as a priority of yours. Not because, Lord, you want to keep us from the fun things, from the enjoyable things, but because, Lord, you are the one who created us and you know what is best for us. So, Lord, let us begin to start thinking differently. Lord, let us do an evaluation of our lives and understand that there's things in our lives we've got to get rid of. We can no longer continue to follow after. And, Lord, let us follow you. Let us pursue you. Father, let us imitate your son. Lord, I'm so thankful you gave us your word. You gave us this Bible that we may know what Christ was like what you're like. And Lord, let us not just be hearers of this word, but let us be doers of it as well. Now, Father, we ask for your spirit to descend upon us, to give us the strength and the mercy to endure a world that has conformed to the ways that it wants to pursue. Let us live in light of these scriptures and let us be transformed by them. In Christ's name we pray and all God's people said, amen.